Good morning, church. Wow, y'all are very awake today. <laughs> uh, while I'm kind of getting oriented here, uh, we're going to be in the book of Jacob today, so I'll, I'll wait as you turn there. Good, God bless you guys. So, <laughs> in your English Bibles, uh, you're going to see this as James. Um, this is actually a, a, a less accurate translation, and we're, we're going to not be doing a study of that word right now, but I do recommend studying up on it on your own time later today or this week. It's a really interesting uh, area to learn about if you're not familiar uh, you're also going to find some interesting theories about why the name was translated this way. Basically, uh, the, the likely issue here uh, would be like making a small tweak to somebody's name to distinguish between the two people with the same name. Uh, and, and then translating that variation into another language. I, for instance, am a, a junior. Uh, my immediate family growing up called me Kenny. Uh, this was to distinguish between me and my father, uh, who was Ken, referred to as Ken. But both of our names are Kenneth. What you would do then is take this variation, Kenny, which is not my actual name, and translated into Russian. Now you kind of have a good idea of what happened with this translation. The question then becomes, well, since it was not translated well, should we stop referring to Jacob as James? My answer, in short, would be whether you should refer to me likewise as Ken, Kenny, Kenneth, or Duffman, whatever, whatever. The important part here is that we know who we're talking about and what overall the context of this letter is. That's what's carrying the weight. So the author here, as we look at in the book of James, again, James or Jacob, five. We're going to henceforth be referring to as James just to prevent any types of confusion. Uh, we can get a quick answer to the author and audience of this book by opening and skimming the very introduction of the book in chapter one. James, as we see, is writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. James should be differentiated from the disciples, James, son of Zebedee, and James, son of Alphaeus. This James that authored James is the, the half-brother of Jesus. The dispersion, or diaspora, is just to be scattered. So this letter, as we're reading, 
and studying today, this letter is to the scattered Jews. And those who are scattered among the Gentiles from the days of captivity. James was most prominently known for his leadership in the church in Jerusalem. He led the church of what was the beginning, the the gathering, the first gathering of the Jews believing in Jesus as the Messiah. The church he led was under fierce persecution by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and was also dealing with a great famine in the region, among many other issues of his day. Now, while this letter begins as appearing like a typical letter, like we would see in other areas of the New Testament, it doesn't read like other letters. If you read it and study it in its entirety, and this is in comparison to where the apostles would, would address certain issues and write to a specific church. This is a little different than that. A fuller study reveals this book is more oriented toward the entire Christian community. Some refer to the book of James as the Proverbs of the New Testament. The book is full of wisdom writings. His aim isn't to teach something new, but to get up all in our business as Christians and how we ought to be living. Basically, when we read this book, we are hearing about what the law of God looks like in practice as New Covenant Christians. Now, this is especially pertinent to Christian Jews at the time of the writing. If you just place yourself there for a moment. In, in light of all the table flipping, calling out of religious leaders, and various charges of adding to God's law that Jesus accused them of so recently. Imagine being a Jewish person in transition from the older covenant into the newer covenant, having lived in the generation of the long-awaited Messiah. And now, entering into this covenant, this new covenant, with Christ. Okay, Lord. What do we do now? So James 5, verses 16 to 18, is going to be our focus. Verses 16 through 18. The wider passage was read earlier for just some better context, uh, but let's dive in as we see what the Lord has for us today. I'm going to reread our passages of focus that will be worked on here today. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain. 
and the earth bore its fruit. May the Lord add his blessings to his word. Therefore, therefore, what we are about to read as we look at the what is the therefore talking about, what we're going to read as instruction, study as instruction, was predicated on Are you suffering? Pray. Cheerful? Sing. Sick? Be anointed by the elders of the church. Then he talks about saving the sick or weak with prayer. That if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So this is a pretty weighty therefore that we're diving into an implication. Most of us can easily receive the instruction to pray in our suffering. Or sing songs when you're joyful. But some in our Reformed circles can get a little squeamish when we start hearing about healing, power in prayer, and anointing. Then you have the more charismatic folks grabbing for their oils and getting all excited. All right, let's do this. What do we do? What are we going to do as a faithful body of believers desiring to obey the Word of God, be transformed by it, submission to it. We're not going to pull back. I assure you that. Let's press in and have a good understanding of God's Word. Because it's true, it's good, and profitable for us today. Confess your sins to one another. The suffering, cheerful, and sick. Here are your instructions. Confess your sins. Confession, here can be a proclamation of something that is simply a matter of fact that others ought to know. This is true. It's an imperative. That's a command. And it's to agree that something is of the truth of God's Word. It carries a weight of praise in the mouth of the speaker. Think of that. It carries the weight of praise. The interesting connection to the rendering here is its use towards believers, us. Praise to God your sins. Your sins being what you'd expect. The wrongdoing of your life. The evil that you have committed. 
So the instruction here is, is making a declaration of praise and worship to God by professing evil that you have committed. Let that resonate a little bit. The result that we'll get to in a few minutes has pretty big implications. And our very ability to see our sin and have remorse over it is a miraculous working of God in every believer that comes to Christ. Praise God in confessing. Professing to each other the things you have done against God. He commands us to do this. Don't just confess. Pray for one another. Pray for one another. This, this word prayer, likewise, confess, pray. This word prayer carries a sense of agreement and affirmation. It's simply to, to make known something that you want, something that you desire. So a, a prayer for another would, would be to express the desire you have for that person. I desire this for you. What are we told to desire for one another here? What's the desire that we're to pray for? That you may be healed. The outcome of worshiping God by exposing and agreeing to what sin we have committed, it heals us. It's to be made new. The contention about what James means here is often over whether he is talking about a physical healing or a spiritual one. I think that's a needless distraction from the weight of this passage. Let this sink in to your heart as we read this word. Should, should we propose that those who are weak in the faith and weary of doing good and struggling and continuing to fight the good fight of the faith? Absolutely. Is your, is your weakness in faith due, due to your forgetfulness of the wickedness of your heart? Your rebellion against God? And how great His love is for us in lavishing us with grace upon grace? That's what James is appealing to here. Should we, should we encourage those that are weak, 
that they just got to have faith. Just try harder, man. No, absolutely not. And you hear that. You hear people encouraging and exhorting it, brother. Just try harder. Praise God that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Strengthen your faith by praising God that when I agree that my works this past week, this past month, this past year, they were evil. Dad disciplining his child in unrighteous anger. Or not at all, out of laziness and apathy. A child disobeying your mom's instruction or grumbling over chores. A wife being disrespectful and unsubmissive to her husband. Employee stealing from his boss. Young woman looking at pornography. You confess. You profess. Praise God to one another. Those works that I did were evil. It was against God and His law. But God, God and His forgiveness is great. Pray for me that I am able to see and know my sin. Pray for me that I would be healed from my weariness and my lack of faith. Now, should we propose that there are those who are sick, ridden with sores, others dying because they have committed evil against God and are not confessing their sin? Should we propose that? Do we know the gospel? The payment that we earn for our sin is what? Death. Ask Adam and Abraham or Noah if, if that was just a spiritual curse. You can't. They all know what death tastes like because they all died. And so will we. But today, they live. And so will we. But that's why when someone we love dies, we mourn. Why, why did he have to die? Why don't I have my dad any longer? Why did two of my children not survive in the womb? Because of sin. The wages of sin is a real death. God created death. He is the author 
to most appropriately display the judgment that we are due. In response to our sinning against our righteous and holy God. This is your due penalty. And death is often violent and painful. Overwhelmingly sad. And it rips giant holes and leaves thick scars and everything affected by it. But it's not just because it's the due penalty of our works. The most destructive and painful inescapable reality that every person faces can now be turned into the most glorious, hope-filled work that Christ did to His glory in coming to defeat death so that we can live. Romans 5, 20-21 reads, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that... As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now because of the severity of the reality of what James is connecting here, we have to answer an inevitable question and address a horrible and wicked movement in many professing churches today. Are you sick because you lack faith? Are you weak because you don't confess your sin and receive prayer? God teaches us in His Word that sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no. Ananias and Sapphira died for lying to the Holy Spirit. Their death didn't come slowly as others did, like those in Corinth. In the church there, those who were weak and dying was because they weren't judging themselves properly and then they were coming to the Lord's table. That was real sickness. That was real death. And it was due to sin in their life. This is a work that God still does today. But then we have the blind man at the disciples. You remember the story? Asking Jesus. Saw him and said, 
whose sin caused his blindness. Were they wrong to presume that? No. Sin brings death. Jesus said, it was not, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And there's Paul. He prayed three times that his ailment would leave him. Well, Lord, what did he tell him? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. For Paul, God wanted to display his might through Paul's suffering. So his prayer was answered. He said, no. No. What this teaches us is that we must always heed the leading and convicting work of the Spirit, illuminating and leading us in the truth of God's Word, and for that to be the desire of our life as reflected in our prayers, our professions and confessions. Now, the passage gets weightier. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This prayer we petition God for apparently as it seems we shouldn't just be going around asking anyone and everyone to pray for such matters. Rather than asking for prayers on Facebook from lots and lots of people as many as I can get to pray for me. James is saying there is power in the prayer of the righteous. There's no mystery what James is referring to because he says, as he names Elijah as the example, seek prayer from people like that. There's another difficult thing to work through here. A righteous person is just, above reproach, someone who lives in accord with God's word and action and morals. But then we know also that it's I quote, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So 
So all who are in Christ receive his perfection and purity by faith. James says Elijah was like us in our nature. And he prayed and it stopped it from raining. It stopped rain for three years and caused a great famine in the land. He later prayed, and it rained. He's like us in our nature, James says. Does that mean that all who are in Christ pray with the same power that James is referring to here? I'm going to propose no. First, and most prominently, in verse 14, he instructed the sick to go to the elders for prayer and anointing. Why? I believe it's because elders are to only serve if they are above reproach among many other qualifications. Being above reproach would be that their conduct, judgment, speech, and overall life cannot be rightly accused of patterns of sin. Well, wait, can, can a man just say, hey, I'm justified by Christ. He's above reproach, so I'm qualified. Is that how the qualifications of elder work? No. Of course not. Paul said to test the fruit of the person. Test their works. Test what they do and what they say and what others say. Two, a righteous person will know how to pray for you. We've been talking about how, in one form or another, those who are sick should go get prayer from another. The reason you need prayer is because you are ill. Either in your faith and or in your body. Or you're weary, you're tired, you're lethargic in pursuing Christ. This is just too much for me to bear. Why would someone who is wavering in faith or sick with various ailments or presently suffering in various ways go to another in the same condition? Three, earnest prayer is what the sick need. Earnest prayer. In the ESV, it's rendered, as you'll see, fervent prayer. The HCSB and NASB is earnestly prayed. Earnest prayer. The earliest sense of the word implies a vow. It's to be in prayer while one prays. 
In prayer, he prayed. When you hear Jesus indignant towards how the temple was being profaned, quotes the prophecy of Isaiah, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You make it a den of robbers. This, this house of prayer is what you should bring to mind when you hear this earnest, fervent prayer. Elijah, in prayer, he, he enters the throne room of God where the Ancient of Days sits and judges the nations. And in a state of reverent prayer, entering into God's presence, surrounded by creatures, worshiping the living King. He opens his mouth to pray a petition to the ruling, enthroned judge. Lord, my God. That, that type of reverence and faith and petition and boldness, that type of approach and understanding and desire for the living God is how he wants his church to pray. It is this righteousness, this spirit and truth, those praying in prayer that the sick or weak are to seek out for healing, real healing. Now, church, we need to be not only comfortable with, but seeking out to have God use our weakness to show His power. We should be seeking out correction from others and receiving it with eagerness. We need it. You need it. It is what works out our salvation, brings healing to our lives, and it is, it is what God purposes for His ultimate glory. Hear the Scripture. For, for the moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let me say that again. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It hurts. All of it. But later, it yields the peaceful 
fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you know something that comes to mind this week about peace? That is the very thing that in a Barna study done recently is what is being sought out by those within and without the church. The number one thing. Do we have something to offer those hurting and suffering in this world? Praise God by declaring his gospel. We, while sinners and rebels, received the mercy of God in the gift of Jesus. Therefore, when we sin, we proclaim that it is an evil work against God that deserves his wrath. But rather than condemnation, in repentance, we receive forgiveness through the blood of Christ. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Peace with God. Church, there is real healing, life giving, Holy Spirit anointed healing. both physical and spiritual for you. To God's glory in this life. If you truly weigh the heart of the matter here in this text, it carries the everlasting truth that the word of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. Let us live, us, and we live repentant lives, living in faith and hope towards the living God, bearing with the fruit of repentance. It's a fruit of the Spirit of God in your life and mine. And may we seek to pray boldly, righteously, seeking the heart and mind of Christ to see Him receive all the glory and honor and praise in our lives, and for others. Amen? Amen.